I want to preach this morning on Paul's letter to the Galatians because we love this passage. We love this passage. This is such a great passage. You could hear it in Michael's voice, and maybe it made you notice again, it is a beautiful passage. This idea that we are all children of God, heirs of God, we say, yes, yes, let that be. We love this passage. This line about there being no longer Jew or Greek, no longer slave or free, no longer male or female, for we're all one in Christ Jesus, and we say, yes, yes, this is true. There's something deeply true about this. We feel it deeply within us. Yes, oh, I love this passage. I love this passage. Have you gotten that yet? <laughs> 2,000 years ago, Paul wrote these words. He knew this also, because you see, he had thought there was a difference between Jew and Greek. He had thought there was a difference between slave and free. He had thought there was a difference between male and female. The law had given him this construct for understanding the world and organizing the world. And when he encountered the risen Lord, everything changed for him. And he realized, no, in Christ we are all one. What does it mean, though, to have this sense of oneness deep within us? What does it mean in our lives to have this sense of oneness? Dr. Christina Cleveland, in a workshop that I attended, which she led, a sociologist, a theologian, spoke about this idea of oneness. And citing a study, which I can't cite, she spoke about research into how long people could come, come how long people could be in a group made of disparate folks, people who have quite a bit of difference, before their difference would start to show up. How long would they have a sense of being one before there would be something that would show that they felt that they were different from another person? Anyone want to guess how many minutes in a group this was? 20 minutes. 20 minutes before something happened that made everyone realize, oh, we're not all the same. So this vision, as beautiful as it is, as lovely as Paul states it, and he's not the only one that says it in scripture, it comes up in different voices time and again. As beautiful as this vision is, it is not easy to attain. And we might feel frustrated with that surprise again and again, because we want to. We want to have a oneness. How is it that this is so hard? The commitment surely can get us mostly there, right? Jesus gave us a simple instruction at that Last Supper to his disciples, love one another. That's it. In John's Gospel, love one another. This Gospel um, book written by John, the beloved disciple, and so he is the one that speaks about beloved community, and then the letters of John later in the Bible, which we don't read very much from, but you like them because when we read from them, they're good stuff. It's all about loving one another. So why can't we seem to get this? We've had a, a 2,000 years of opportunity, right? This call for beloved community is not as easy as it might seem, even though even a five-year-old or someone who is an early reader could write the sentence. That's why our national church is calling us for revival, because obviously we need a dose of the spirit to get over a hump or two or three, whatever it is that is proving resistant 
to such a wonderful vision that God has for us. I've been forwarding you these emails. Sorry if you feel like I'm spamming you. If you want to sign up for yourself, then I won't do it anymore. But every day, and we've skipped a few, Sabbath, my Sabbath day was Friday, I wasn't on my computer, Saturday I was gone all day, Sunday I haven't done this yet, so now we're even behind. I guess I'll conclude a three, a three of them in there. But the idea of beloved community was outlined by our national church many years ago, actually, inviting us to four particular things. Proclaiming the dream of beloved community, practicing the way of love, repairing the breach, and telling the truth. Perhaps some of this sounds familiar to you, as you know that our church has been giving us instruction for how to practice the way of love. We talked a lot about that over these last 10 or more years. Proclaiming the dream, maybe we haven't talked about that too much. I mean, it comes up. This is one example. This is what the prayers are about. So what is it? How do we publicly acknowledge those things done and left undone in regard to God's vision for humanity? What does beloved community look like in this place? What behaviors and commitments will foster reconciliation and justice and healing? These are ways we can proclaim the dream. Practicing the way of love brings to our attention how will we grow as reconcilers, healers, and justice bearers? How will we grow in those capacities? How will we actively grow relationship across dividing walls and seek Christ and the other? We say it even in our baptismal covenant. So the commitment is there. How will we do it? Repairing the breach is about what institutions and systems are broken so that there is a disjointedness into the restorative picture that we have. And how we participate in repairing those things or restoring or healing of people and institutions and systems. When we notice this is broken, how do we participate in healing and repairing and restoring? And then telling the truth. Mm, this one. Do we need this one really? Who are we? What things have we done and left undone regarding racial justice and healing? This might be the hardest part, for we see in scripture and we know in our own lives, noticing the truth within us is not always the first thing we want to do if we feel ashamed or frightened. All this to say it's really hard to make a new way. We often don't realize the ways in which we've always thought about things and how we've always done things. I mean, which of us would have guessed 20 minutes before it would become evident? Maybe you can stick around coffee hour for a full 20 minutes and test it. We know this even in our own scriptures. Peter and Paul had a difference on, um, on their understandings of what should be practiced in our oneness. Peter advocated for circumcision for everyone. So if you were Jew, of course you would be circumcised. If you were a Greek and came to be a follower of the way of Jesus, to become a part of this whole journey of God's chosen people, you needed to be circumcised. And Paul said, no, 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 no. You do not need to be circumcised if you are Greek and you come to be a follower of Jesus and you come a part of the children of God, which means you are part of God's chosen people. You do not need to be circumcised. And you know how long these two came, claimed their side and talked it through, talked it through? 13 years, 13 years they had this conversation. Paul didn't like to go to Jerusalem because that's where Peter was and Peter would take up the topic again. So they kind of just tried to keep their separate places. I'm not exaggerating, folks. This is how we humans are. 
even with this invitation by God for oneness. And Peter knew it too, because if you remember in Acts, in the letter um, of Acts, that the, of the apostles, Peter has this realization after the Pentecost that there is no difference, that we are all one in the Spirit. He says it in a sermon to thousands of people. So Peter had the same conviction, but how to do it? They had differences of opinion. This is familiar to us also, and I want to highlight this particularly because today is Juneteenth, the first time our nation has recognized this as a federal holiday. And I want to just highlight yet another illustration because we seem at every turn when we're going through transition and change to find something there that we didn't realize, oh, we need to figure that out. I'm going to read to you just a brief paragraph from this book, How the Word is Passed, Reckoning with the History of Slavery Across America. It's written by Clinton Smith. And just a little bit about him. He was born and raised in New Orleans. He received his BA in English from Davidson College and his PhD in education from Harvard University. It's a very accessible book, really rich in it, the way he takes facts and history and puts them in a way that, you know, people who don't like to really read history books can enjoy. But he's talking about, in this particular chapter, Galveston Island. When General Granger came and told the people of Texas that all slaves are free, two years after the Emancipation Proclamation was signed. The summer, June 19th of 1865, and the proclamation of the, the Emancipation Proclamation had been signed in 1863. And so here it is that they show up and everything is announced. But here's a quote from an oral history of a black man who was enslaved in Texas. His name is Felix Haywood. He said, we knowed freedom was on us, but we didn't know what was to come with it. We thought we was going to, going to get rich like the white folks. We thought we was going to be rich, richer than the white folks because we were stronger and knowed how to work, and the whites didn't, and they didn't have us to work for them anymore. But it didn't turn out that way. We soon found out that freedom could make folks proud, but it didn't make them rich. Even with the news of freedom, freedom was not realized. It came to pass that you could figure out how to live as a freed person once the Freedmen's Bureau arrived and gave you some instruction from the law. But the Freedmen's Bureau didn't arrive in Texas until two months after the proclamation. And so what were people to do in that time? And why doesn't it worked this way, as Felix Haywood imagined. If work generates wealth, then what Felix Haywood expected to happen should have happened. But it didn't. And the law said that freed people were barred from assembling in groups until members of the Freedmen's Bureau could arrive, and that was two months later. The Freedmen's Bureau was set up to provide aid to formerly enslaved black people and impoverished white people throughout the South after the Civil War, and yet they didn't get there until two months after the proclamation. So guess who could get together over those two months and figure out what to do about the changing reality? You know, everything flows through the path of least resistance. Whether it's water, or fire, or humans. Everything flows the path of least resistance. And that includes us. 
Do you, need, do you believe me? Or do I need to give you illustrations? Think about it for a minute. Do you believe me or do I need to give you illustrations? Because if I need to give you illustrations, it's gonna, this sermon will be about five minutes longer. <laughs> do you believe me? Okay, so you're thinking of those things, right? Oh my gosh, that's true, this is me, this is me. We become like the basic elements of fire and water. We want the easy way. Gosh, I, I love the easy way. And we all have ways of figuring that out for the path of least resistance. I was on a call with the Association for um, Religious Communities in Danbury back in February talking about the housing crisis, which we're still very much in. And even though we have five vacant homes for every homeless pe person, we do not have secure housing for the people of our nation. And folks in Connecticut have to make $25 an hour just to afford an affordable housing unit. So you can see the problem, and this is what they are bringing to our attention, the leaders of the Association for Religious Communities. And they said, you know, um, affordable housing, the developers of affordable housing are just looking for the path of least resistance. They don't want to go to court. They don't want to fight. They're looking for the path of least resistance. And it just seems like that is how all of us are, that when we look at something, we try to decide if it's hard, we ask, well, what's in it for me? I mean, I'll decide about how much I'm going to work depending on what's in it for me. This is the question each of us asks ourselves. Grads, you're here today. Students, when you think about what you're going to do, don't you think, what's in it for me? Do you think when you study, oh, I want to go, I am going to study, I hate studying, but I'm going to study because I want the good grade. Or I'm going to take this class and do this hard work because I want to have an easy way into college. Or I'm going to be on that sports team and rearrange my schedule because it's going to look good on my college resume. Or I'm going to be a part of Global Philanthropy Leaders. Or I'm going to take the class that Father John Morrison is offering because then the AP test will be easier. Yes. Dads, don't you do this too? You figure out how much can I discipline my kids so that I don't have to discipline them anymore. We want the path of least resistance. All of us do. You think, how, how hard do I have to work now so that I can retire? Of course you do, because we all do that. Perhaps you teach your children, sometimes you just got to bear it and get through it. Why? Because on the other side is something better. Haven't you told them this? This is basic wisdom. I think you have this. I want to encourage all of us to not be afraid to notice this within ourselves to take a breath and let yourself notice this. Oh, yes, this is me. I'm looking for the path of least resistance. And if I'm going to encounter resistance, then I'm going to have to answer the question for myself, what's in it for me? I hope you're not afraid to acknowledge this because you're not hiding any secret. We all feel this way. And God knows you feel this way too. So don't be afraid of trying to hide it from God, because God already knows it. And the fact that God hasn't smited each one of us for this fact should give you some assurance of the mercy of God, the generosity of God, the love of God. Because God knows this about us, knows that we are like grass here one day and the next burned in the fire, knows that we are like a breath that goes out and doesn't return. God knows this about us. Darwin said it's about survival of the fittest, but I would then add a 
colon and go, for, go on and say, yeah, those that survived simply did the work of creating new paths of least resistance. Or maybe they had skills that made it easy for them to move into the new reality. Because studies show that most of us would rather die than change. What's in it for me, we ask? What's in it for me to make the beloved community this vision that Paul says and Peter and others in scripture that our own church has called us to? We might say, what's in it for me? And I don't have an answer for you. I don't have an answer for you. Not specifics. It's not retirement. And I'm not even going to tell you about glories of heaven and gold streets and things like that. But I do know from scripture and from the witness of those that have gone before that you will have riches and freedom that only God can give. And I don't know what those are. Only you will discover those because they're only things God can give. It's God that gives us all that we need and all that we hope for and asks us to live into his vision for our created order with that promise of fulfillment. Yesterday, I went down to Washington, D.C. with about 29 other people from Connecticut. At least that's how many people were on our bus for the Moral March on Washington. The Poor People's Campaign had gathered people from all kinds of different organizations to call for a moral revival in our nation that considers the least of these, which, as one speaker said, is now the most of us. 43% of the United States is either poor or low wealth. We, in the planning, had planned to take three buses down. We actually reserved three buses. But about 10 days out, we realized there's no way we're filling all these buses. And we went down to one, a one bus that can hold 52 people, and we had about 30 of us on there. And it occurred to me how much we had to organize our lives in order to go. Funnily enough, talking about what's in it for me, I found myself doing this self-talk literally the day before. I found myself saying to people, this is going to be inspiring. That's what's in it for me. I'm going to be inspired. I didn't even know I needed something from it, but obviously I did because I started telling everybody the next day, the day before, you should go. It's going to be inspiring. I mean, indeed, we left in the middle of the night on Friday, which meant people had to figure out their schedules and interrupt their sleep patterns. One friend of mine, he and his wife have only one car and, and two small children. So rather than waking the kids up for him to be dropped off at the bus stop to be picked up, they had to figure out how she could do without the car for Saturday. There's a lot of resistance here. Pets to be taken care of, chores that had to be moved off of their usual Saturday routine. Lots of places for resistance. And although the bus wasn't very expensive, when we offered people scholarships, you had to figure out if you were going to bring food and water, what you were going to leave on the bus, what's the weather like, have I packed enough or packed too little, do I need some money? All of these things can be obstacles and resistance. And it just occurred to me, oh, how much intentionality and strategy and community and fortitude it's going to take to create new paths. All of that together. And that's what we heard throughout this moral march yesterday, story after story of people's experience, experiences of living in our nation with the various obstacles to a fruitful life, to a thriving life. The list went on. 
The rally itself was a little over four hours, and at one part in the, in the time it, after the two-hour mark, Reverend Barber, who was one of the co-leaders of it, got up and spoke to the crowd and said, folks, I need you to listen. These people have come from a long way to tell their stories. I can't have you having conversations out there with each other and distracted over there on the lawn. Pay attention. But how many of us are accustomed to paying attention outside for more than two hours? We don't even have these muscles built up for listening to person after person. And they had so many ways of engaging us, videos and songs, to break it up. And I thought, golly, are we that out of shape? We can't even hang on to hear of people's experience, to hear of the native man who got up and spoke about opioid addiction. He started off in his full dress and said, Happy Father's Day to all of you who are fathers. I've lost three of my children to suicide. Yeah, that's a hard story to hear. Opioid addiction and the lack of availability of mental health. There were several parts during yesterday that I literally cried to hear these stories. One woman who has shown up quite a bit on um, the Poor People's Campaign's efforts, she's in West Virginia, one of their organizers. She's a coal miner, coal miner's daughter. I don't think she, she might have done coal mining, but she's always worked two to three jobs just to make ends meet, always. And she yelled into the microphone, she's a very powerful speaker. You would not find yourself in any other social setting, my friends, where you would encounter her. And she yelled into the microphone and she said, poverty took, stole my child's children, my children's childhood from them. When they reflect on my time with them, I wasn't there. I didn't do homework with them. I didn't go to their events because I was working two and sometimes three jobs just to make sure they had a roof over their head and food on the table and shoes. It's going to take so much intentionality and strategy and community and fortitude to create new paths that are not resistant and we need to do that for ourselves and each other because we always choose the path of least resistance. It's like a habit. It's just how we are. How can we make a way? And the point was driven home again yesterday about how important it is that everyone votes, how few people in our nation vote, and how many people might be turned off by new voting laws and become even more less likely to vote. And so Reverend Barber, because he's a powerful speaker, wanted to like inject us with the commitment to help people get to the polls. That these barriers we could overcome with God's help. And we can get people there, but it's going to take our intentionality and strategy and community and fortitude to get us there. And he wanted us to hold on for four hours, just hold on for four hours. Thus our prayer, Lord, let us not take the pathway of least resistance in our effort to make a new way. It's just not there. It's going to require us to lean into the grace of God to make a new way. On this Juneteenth, we're invited to reflect on finding ourselves and finding a new way. White people, that's how all of us would pass in the world. Often ask, how am I supposed to engage in this holiday of Juneteenth? It's really a black person's 
black American story. This federal holiday that celebrates the contributions of black Americans against all odds and their commitment to fight for a nation that claims to be for all people. I want to share with you some words that Clinton wrote in the same, the same chapter on Galveston Island when he went to a Juneteenth celebration, which had been going on for all the time. And in this celebration, there were kids that would stand up, school children, and hold up years, a sign with a year on it, and then say what had happened that year in the scope of black history. And he says, I watched these young people read to the audience parts of history that placed our country in context. I felt in that moment, he's a black man, I felt in that moment envious of them. Had I known when I was younger what some of these students were sharing, I felt as if I would have been liberated from a social and emotional paralysis that for so long I could not name. A paralysis that had arisen from never knowing enough of my own history to effectively identify the lies. I was being told by others lies. Lies about what slavery was and what it did to people. Lies about what came after our supposed emancipation. Lies about why our country looks the way it does today. And this is what this book's about, how the word is passed. This is all, he's listening to how people talk about slavery in this book. And that's from which he speaks. He goes on to say, I had grown up in a world that never tired of telling me and other black children like me all of the things that were wrong with us, all of the things we needed to do better. But not enough people spoke about the reason so many black children grow up in communities saturated with poverty and violence. Not enough people spoke about how these realities were the result of decisions made by people in power and had existed for generations before us. And there it is, our instruction as white Americans. We can know the history of our nation as it relates to black Americans to an extent that we are, none of us are fooled by lies. This is liberating. The truth liberates us. And there are so many resources out there accessible to us to grow in our awareness of the truth. Smith goes on to say, after college, when I was doing more reading on my own, I began to understand all that has happened to our communities, to our people over generations. It was liberating. I had language to name what I felt but had never known how to say. People sometimes believe that if they talk to black youth about the historical legacy of slavery, and I would say sometimes people believe if they talk to white youth about the historical legacy of slavery, and the intergenerational iterations of systemic racism that followed, that young people will feel overwhelmed and shut down. But there is enormous value in providing young people with the language, the history, and the framework to identify why their society looks the way it does. Understanding that all of this was done, not by accident, but by design. That did not strip me of my agency. It gave agency back to me. I watched these young people share this history, and I dreamed of what it might mean if we could extend these lessons to every child. How different might our country look if all of us fully understood what has happened here? And doesn't that help us, even going back to Felix Haywood and the realities of what grew up after emancipation? 
This truth-telling is what the church is calling us to because in God, we are safe in the truth. Who are we? What things have we done and left undone regarding racial justice and healing? The goal here for us is a world that reflects what God sees. Beloved, beloved community. Each of us a child of God because God has made us God's children. We're not a Christian nation, not if we're trying for what Paul is offering us as inspired word. Indeed, we have a long way to go. We know about tribal loyalties. It's not Jew or Greek maybe anymore, but maybe Russian and Ukrainian, maybe Republican and Democrat, maybe liberal and progressive and conservative. We know about tribal identities. It's no longer slave and free, but it is the haves and the have-nots. It is systems of oppression. It is the question of how we can have equity in our nation. It's not male and female, unless you want to get into some of the ways in which men and women are treated differently in our world, or you want to notice the breath that's spent on issues around gender identity. We're not a Christian nation. That's part of what the Poor People's Campaign wants us to notice. We have a false understanding of ourselves because what God wants to see is what Paul is telling us about. A place of unity where we are all one. And so it is that we want God to create new pathways of least resistance in us because only God can create them. And I want to invite you to claim these words for yourself and repeat after me. I want God to create new pathways of least resistance in me. Turn to the person beside you and look at them and say it again. I want God to create new pathways of least resistance in me. Because only God can do that by coming together for communion, by coming together to read scripture, by coming together for prayer. That's when God then creates new pathways. We literally can't do it. They're already hardwired over practice and practice and practice. And our mental threads go through our brain in those pathways of least resistance. Mm, it's good. And so we need God to change this through our heart and through our mind, and only God can do it. And so let us join with our presiding bishop's call for prayer for revival. Let us join in praying that God will make us more the beloved community, that God can work with our best efforts and create new pathways of least resistance for the sake of the glory of God, the news of the resurrection and the promise of what that means to all of us. This is what we, as God's children, are called to remember. And so it becomes our prayer, Lord, help us. Amen. <laughs>